Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather here together and to worship you and to hear your word. We believe that you are here right now. We believe that you speak to us through your scripture and through your holy word. We believe that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to change us and to help us to grow and to know you better. And I pray for me to be humble and to stay out of the way and for, and for all those things to happen. I pray for the cares and the worries of this world to fade beside the, the miracle of your scripture, the miracle of your word, and pray for hearts and minds to be changed here. In Jesus' name, I pray for these things. Amen. Now, admittedly, it's a strange way to start a Sunday morning message, but do you guys remember studying Greek mythology in high school? You guys remember this? Zeus and Hercules and, and Medusa, right? What about Bellerophon? Do you guys know this guy? So he, he was a Greek hero, and he, he was tasked with the with brutal task of trying to, to slay the chimera. The chimera is this like dragon-like creature with a body of a, of a lion and a snake for a tail and wings and, and breathe fire. And in order for him to be able to slay this creature, he had to go befriend Pegasus. Remember the horse with the wings? And with Pegasus' help, he was actually able to defeat this chimera, right? And, and, and he's, he's elated after his victory, and he's feeling pretty full of himself. He's, he's, he's feeling invincible, right? And so he jumps on Pegasus, and he's ready for his next adventure, and he's going to go see Mount Olympus, right? And so he urges Pegasus to, to fly higher and higher, and he's getting closer and closer to the mountain, the mountaintop where the gods live, right? Mount Olympus. And, and he's, getting, and he's, he's seeing the, the, the mountaintop through the clouds, and he's feeling what it might be like to be on Olympus like the gods, and the gods see this, right? and they're offended at his presumption, and they send a little fly to bite Pegasus. And Pegasus bucks Bellerophon off. He falls miles and miles to the ground, but he doesn't die. The gods are, are, are so irritated at his presumption that he's only crippled. And he's, he's doomed to spend the rest of his life dragging his crippled body over the earth, looking for his friend Pegasus, who, who he never finds. And that's his fate. What do you guys think is the moral of this story. How about another one that maybe you're more familiar with? What about Icarus? Do you guys remember him? He was imprisoned with his father. His father was this great inventor. And in order to escape the prison, his father cracks wings from wax. Do you guys remember this? And, and feathers. And then they can fly out of the prison. That's how they escape. And, and, and Icarus's father had warned him, but not, not to fly too high, but as he was flying, he's so exhilarated by the, by the majesty of flight that he goes higher and higher and higher, and the heat from the sun melts his wings, and he, and he falls to the earth, and he perishes. Or what about Aesop's fable of the two roosters? You guys know this one? So there's two roosters that are vying for, for dominance of the barnyard, and they end up fighting it out, and one of the roosters wins, and, and he's, he's so elated in his win, he, he flies to the top of the barn, like the highest, the pinnacle of the barnyard, I suppose, and he like crows his victory to the world. And while he's up there, a hawk swoops down, grabs him, and eats him. What are the, what's the moral to these stories? What do you guys think? I know it's a brethren assembly. None of you can, uh, can talk during the sermon, but <laughs> what do you guys think? No one? It, it, it's pride, right? Isn't it pride, an overweening self, sense of self and love of self? The Greeks would call it hubris. Right? And then isn't it interesting that a lot of time these old stories, told for thousands of years, in the absence of Scripture, it's almost like it's people's attempt to sort of understand and articulate God's law written on their hearts in the absence of revealed truth. Right? And I think we could see that here because if we look in the Bible, we see warning after warning after warning about pride, don't we? 
I mean, James tells us that God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. We see this same theme in the Tower of Babel. Remember? Where, where they're, they're, they're building this tower. They're trying to approach God on their own terms. Maybe even be gods themselves. And, and God sees this and he cripples them, doesn't he? He, he casts them down. He confuses their language and the, and the tower collapses. I think Proverbs 16.5 says it best. Proverbs 16.5 is like a, a punch in the gut. It says, everyone who is proud is an abomination to the Lord. Rest assured, it warns, they will be punished. Pride. I think what's clear from this is that God hates pride. It's an abomination to him. And so that's what I want to talk about today is pride. And it, one, because it's important to God. But another, I think sometimes that we don't take pride as seriously in the church as what we see in that book. Sometimes I think pride almost is a sin that gets a pass for us. I mean... Take me for an example. I'm a deacon in the church. I, I teach Sunday school. Um, obviously, I, I, occasionally I, I get to, to preach a sermon from up here. What would happen in our church if I stood up here today and I said, you know, I'm struggling with the sin of, of lust. And this sin is manifesting itself in my life as, whatever, as, as an addiction to pornography or adultery. What would happen? I would, I, my guess is I would probably be removed from leadership, right? I would probably be removed from ministry, at least until that sin had been have been taken care of in my life, and, 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 and I'm not saying there's anything, necessarily anything wrong with that, but I will ask you to think, what would happen if I stood up here on the same stage today, and I confessed that I had an ongoing struggle with pride in my life? Would I be removed from leadership? Would the, would the congregation clamor for my resignation as the deacon? Well, I, I guess we'll find out, because I'm going to stand up here today, and I'm going to confess <laughs> an ongoing struggle with pride in my life, but but all kidding aside, I mean, it's not clear to me that we as, and I'm not, it's not talking about our church. I'm, I'm using as an example of the church at large. It's not clear to me that, that we take pride as seriously as what we see in this book. It, what we read here is that, that God hates pride as much or as more as any other sin. It's not, it's not obvious to me that, that we feel that way in the church. And so that's what I want to focus on today. And I think one of the reasons why we don't take it as seriously as we probably should is because we don't fully understand pride. And I think more specifically, we don't understand what pride robs us of. And that's what we're going to look at today. And it's through the lens of another account of John the Baptist. And through this lens, we're going to see John once again uh, emphasizing our role in relationship to Christ. And he's going to tell us what our mission is in that role. And then through that testimony, we're going to extract what our greatest obstacle is to, to fulfilling that role and, and that mission. And I'm not going to bury the headline. It, it's obvious. It's pride, Right? And so we're going to, t that being the case, we're going to think through some ways to identify pride in our lives. And I'll give you a hint. You're all proud. If you're sitting there right now and you're thinking, oh, I really hope my wife listens carefully to this. Or, or you know, I've got this pride thing handled. You know, this is not my cross to bear. I feel sorry. You're proud. We all, we all are, okay? And that being the case, we're also going to explore some tools in, in, to, to overcome pride in our lives. And we're going to do that starting in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and verse 22. Like I said, this is, this is another account of John the Baptist. And you guys can turn to me. We're going to read, and we're going to be there for quite a while. So if, if you want to turn to that, 
Um, but this is an account of John the Baptist. And so while you're, you're finding this, this scripture, I'll bring you up to speed on where we are in the story of John the Baptist as we're walking through the gospel of John. And, and what, we've seen in cha- what we saw in chapter 1 was a glimpse of John when he was questioned by the Pharisees. He has this enormously popular ministry, and he's questioned by the Pharisees. And we see him making clear, he says, I am not, remember he says, I am not Elijah reborn. He says, I am not this prophet that the Jewish people have been waiting for all this time, and I'm certainly not the Messiah. And then when Jesus does show up where, where John is, is performing his ministry, he says, look, that's the guy. That's who I've been talking about all this time. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. That's the guy. That's the one I've been talking about all this time. That's the Savior. That's Christ. That's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin of the world. And so he points to Jesus. And then we saw at the very end of that, remember, some of John's disciples started to leave his ministry and started to follow Jesus. Remember, it was Andrew and Simon Peter. And then we kind of lose the thread of John the Baptist. And, and the narrative shifts focus onto Jesus. And we see Jesus work miracles. We see him cleanse the temple. And we see him gather disciples. And then last week, we saw him having this dialogue with Nicodemus about, about being reborn. And then, and then we come back to uh, the story of, of John the Baptist. John the Baptist reenters the scripture. And, and it's right here at, at uh, verse 22. And here it says, After this, after this being the dialogue with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized now, John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. And this was before John was put into prison. So I want to take a pause for just a second and make sure that we have the context right because it's very important here and how this account fits together with the account in chapter 1. Because remember in chapter 1 we saw John the Baptist saying he's not the Savior and pointing to Jesus as the Savior. And then his disciples were starting to, to leave his ministry because of the things he was saying, also, I mean, Jesus is Jesus. So people were leaving John the Baptist and following Jesus. And we saw the beginning of that, like a trickle of that in chapter 1. And then here we pick up again and we see that Jesus now has a crowd of followers. It's almost like this trickle has become a flood, right? It's almost like a contrast here. And we see that Jesus has come into the same region as John the Baptist, and he's also baptizing. And it's not necessarily literally true from what you see in the scripture, but the idea that's sort of being painted here is you have Jesus on one side of the river with this crowd of people baptizing and, and ministering, and you have John the Baptist on the other side of the river with this crowd of people ministering and, and baptizing. And the image is almost of, if you didn't understand correctly, of, of like a ri- of rival ministries here, right? And John the Baptist's followers, that's exactly what they see, right? And they see John the Baptist's group getting smaller, and they see Jesus's group getting bigger, and then we see in verse 25, what they have to say to John about that. So in verse 25, it's, uh, Scripture tells us, there is a matter of dispute developed on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you at the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and all the people are coming to him. Now, it's not obvious from the face of the text, and I put some emphasis on there, but they're leveling a criticism at John here. There's frustration. I, I mean, look at it again. It says, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified. The point here is they're not even willing to say Jesus's name. They're saying, you know, this guy that's on the other side of the river that you were making such a big deal about over there. Well, look, all of our followers are leaving us and going to him. They're essentially like, they're, they're essentially counting Twitter followers and they're, they're annoyed because this rabbi has more Twitter followers than their rabbi. Right? And so, John the Baptist's response to them is really profound, and I think it gets right to the heart of, of what we want to talk about today. And in 27, he replies to his disciples. He says, A person can receive not even one thing 
unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses when I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the groom who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So here again, we see John holding fast, despite criticism, to what he sees as his proper role in relation to Christ. This is an echo of what John Tillery taught us when we, when we went through chapter 1. Remember, John ta- told us that essentially looking at John the Baptist's ministry and his response to Christ is a lesson to us in how we should live in relation to Christ. And, and from that example, we know that we should endeavor to point people more to Christ and less to ourselves. And here John the Baptist is emphasizing this again, saying, in response to his disciples, saying, no, 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 you guys have it all wrong. My response to, the, to Jesus' crowds getting bigger isn't to be resentful or jealous because I'm no longer the center of attention. All of these people that you see here, these are from God. Nothing comes to us except through God. And more than that, this is the bride. I'm not even the groom. Jesus is the groom. I'm the best man. So you see again that, that through this analogy, John the Baptist is, is, is reemphasizing this role that we're supposed to, this posture we're supposed to take towards Jesus. Right? And he's not just talking about the role here. He's also talking about the mission that we're called to accomplish as, when we're in that role. And to understand that, we have to understand a little bit better what this analogy of, of the, the friend of the bridegroom. And I'm going to use the, the word best man just because it's faster to say than friend of the bridegroom, but it could be best woman. We need to understand better this, this analogy of the best man. And then, like now, the best man, yes, it was an important role. It was a trusted friend of the groom, so all those things are true. But, but in first century Middle East, uh, the, the, the best man had a lot more responsibility than just like planning an awesome bachelor party, right? As most of us probably know, back then, marriages weren't necessarily a love affair. It was more of a, a, an, a, an economic and political union arrangement between two families. And oftentimes, the, the bride and the groom had never even seen each other before the wedding. And in this context, it was actually the best man that was the arbiter of this process of bringing the bride and groom together, the families together. And so you would see the best man negotiating on the, on the groom's behalf to the bride's family and carrying messages back and forth between the two families. You would see him, uh, once the marriage was arranged, he, he would arrange for the travel for, for the bride to wherever the wedding was to make sure she arrived there safe. Like I said, a lot of times, the bride and the groom had never even met each other. And so it was the best man's responsibility. There was a sort of this ceremonial first meeting, right? So he'd make sure there's a secluded place, that it's safe, and, and the bride was properly made up, and the groom was properly made up. So this first meeting uh, went really well. And then even after the wedding, he was oftentimes responsible for arranging the couple's travel to their new home, where they would set up their new life together. And, and, and so you can see from this like suite of duties that the best man is essentially the, the facilitator of this process of bringing the bride and the groom together and of sort of setting the circumstances for them to, to start their relationship together successfully. So that's the mission of the best man. And so through this analogy, embedded in this analogy of John the Baptist being the best man to Jesus, we see that that's our mission as, as the best man in this role as the best man to Jesus. That's also our mission. It's more than even just the mission. With regard to that mission, I think it's not that hard in the context of John the Baptist's ministry and in the context of the Great Commission to see how that mission plays itself out uh, in our current time, in our own lives. If we're called to, be, to make disciples of people of all nations, doesn't it make sense that that process would start with us being a messenger from Christ into the lives of, of the unsaved? 
And does it make sense that after setting that groundwork, and maybe it's five years, but eventually we're charged with sharing the gospel with that person, right? We're, we're charged with arranging that true first meeting between Jesus and this person, between the bride and the groom, right? And encouraging them to accept Jesus as their, as their Lord and Savior. And then even after the events of salvation, it's not as if our role ends there, does it? I think we all understand we're not, we're not responsible for their lives, but, but they are our disciples at that point. Shouldn't they be? And, and we have some duty to, to, to do the best that we can to facilitate that relationship between them and Jesus going forward. We encourage them. We exhort them. We, we hold them accountable if, if, if that's appropriate. And so we can see that this mission, this mission of uh, being a, a friend of the groom, essentially is disciple-making in a nutshell, isn't it? And so now we see that what our role is and we see what our mission is. But that's not even where I want to spend time today. Right? Embedded in this analogy is also guidance as to the, the type of life that we're supposed to live. The condition of our heart in order to fulfill this role and in, and in order to carry out this mission. And in order to see that, we have to think about one other thing. We have to think about who the, the best man is working for. Right? When the best man arranges a, a financially beneficial marriage, he, he doesn't benefit from that. He doesn't get any money from that. He's not the one that's going to see that beautiful wife the, the first time in, in, that, in that tent that he's arranged for. He's not the one that's going to ride off into the sunset with the beautiful bride. He's doing all these things on behalf of the bride and on behalf of the groom. He's doing it altruistically. Right? And so his heart has to be a heart of service. His heart has to be a heart of humility. His heart has to be other-focused. Right? And so that's the heart that we're called to have in this context, in this role, in order to carry out this mission, we're called to have a humble heart. And another way to get at this is to think about what would happen if we didn't have that humble heart. What would happen if we were working for ourselves instead of Christ? Right? Just imagine, you have this best man. He's put together this beautiful wedding, this beautiful bride here, it's a great financial arrangement, and he thinks, wow, this is a beautiful wedding. She's looking pretty hot. It's a great financial deal. Why did I do all this work for somebody else? I think I'm just going to slide right into the groom's role. It's crazy, right? It would be catastrophic. But how often do we do that in our own lives? How often do we make service to God all about ourselves? What is it that makes us do that? What is it that makes us turn the attention to ourselves? Even, even more, while we're here, what is it that keeps us from fulfilling any of these missions of the best man? Right? What is it that keeps us from being that messenger into the lives of the unsaved? Is it, is it fear of rejection? Fear of looking silly or being called a bigot? What is it that keeps us, once we've developed a disciple, from, from maintaining contact with them? Or, or what, what, what makes us get resentful when they don't respond to us the way we, we expect that they should, or they don't grow the way that we would want to? What causes that resentment? What causes us to fail in these tasks that we've been given? Is it the fear itself? Is it the resentment itself? I would invite you guys to look a little bit deeper. What is it that drives fear? What is it that drives resentment? What's underneath all of these thieves in our lives? I think if you look carefully enough, you'll see that it's pride. It's us. It's you. It's me. It's self. that stops us from, fulfilling this, from op- occupying this role and from, from fulfilling this mission. It's pride. As C.S. Lewis said... The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that 
are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride. Self. And I think understanding this gets close to one of the primary lessons that Scripture is trying to teach us through, our, through its account of John the Baptist. Humility. It's death of self. That takes us to verse 30 in our reading today. What does John say? He says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Taken to its logical limit, I become nothing, so he becomes everything. Death of self. So to do this, we have to humble ourselves. How do we do that? Well, that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time today doing. And as the old saying warns, there are two types of people. There are the humble, and there are those about to be humbled. And it's being humbled is not a pleasant process, but that's what we're going to do uh, here now. And, and to begin this process, I think we start where we always start as believers. I think we start at the gospel. I mean, after all, think, think about it in, in sort of a strange way. Aren't we both the best man and the bride in this analogy? I mean, think about it. In order to be in relationship to Christ, he's the Lord of the universe. We have to have accepted him as our Savior, as our Lord. Right? In other words, we have to have taken on the role of the bride and understood the gospel and accepted the gospel and accepted him as our Lord and Savior in order to be his friend, in order to be the friend of the bridegroom. Right? And in this context, I mean, I mean, what could possibly be more humbling than understanding the depth of our sin and the depth of our depravity? Understanding the eternal judgment and the eternal punishment that we deserve because of that sin. As Benoit shared this morning in the Breaking of Bread, we're like, we're like a dead dog from the perspective of God, right? That's humbling. What could be possibly be more humbling than understanding that there's no way that we, through our acts of our own, could earn our way out of this sin debt? And that our best efforts are nothing but filthy rags from the perspective of the Lord. What could possibly be more humbling than knowing that perfect, loving Jesus took on this sin debt for himself and paid that price for himself? What could possibly be more motivating for us to get out of the spotlight and give the glory to Jesus than understanding the magnitude of what he did for us and that he had done that out of love? What could possibly be more important once we understand all of this than sharing the news of this free gift to the lost and to the unsaved? And so we see, to properly take on the role of the best man, we have to think about and fully appreciate as best we can our role as the bride. In order to be the friend of the bridegroom, we have to think about and fully appreciate as often as we can what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done for us. So that's the first step of being humble, is the gospel. And then I think once you have that in place, you can start to think more granularly. You can start to think about how this plays out in your daily life. And here again, I think we can look to John the Baptist for guidance. I mean, if you look at his life, is it not a model of humility? When you look at his life, isn't it, isn't it an example of a man who's gone line by line through every aspect of his life and asked himself, how can I take this aspect of my life and turn it more towards God and less towards myself? I mean, think about his finances. The guy was an aesthetic living in the desert. Think about his, his commitment to, to, to pleasures of the flesh in this world. The guy was wearing a camel skin or camel hair cloak and he was eating bugs, right? I mean, think about his, his relationship to worldly success. 
We've seen over and over that every opportunity he had to get some kind of glory or fame from this extremely successful ministry that he had, he would disclaim it, and he would point instead to Jesus. So what we see in the life of John the Baptist is someone who is with intent and with candor. He's looked in every dark cranny of his life, and he's found any, any vestige of pride, any remnant of self, and he's nailed it to the cross. That's what we see there, and that's what we're called to do as well, to pick up that same cross. So how do we do that? I think that the way you would start to do that is with your thought life. Recall, go back to what uh, C.S. Lewis had said. What did he call pride? He called pride the anti-God what? The anti-God state of mind, right? And we don't see this explicitly in, in the story of John the Baptist, like thinking about your thought life. But if you think about it, it makes sense because John the Baptist wouldn't live the life that he lived unless his life, his, his thought life, and his heart were properly oriented on God. His life, like our life, is just the outward manifestation of what we think and what we believe. As Ralph Waldo Emerson says, you sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. You sow a character, you reap a destiny. Scripture tells us this more bluntly. And in Proverbs, it, it says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. In other words, as you thinketh in your heart, so are you. So how do we thinketh? How do we thinketh? Take a moment. Think about that for a second. Look at your thought life. How much of it is focused on Christ and others, and how much of it is focused on yourself? I think one way to get at this is to walk through together a hypothetical example of a hypothetical day. Okay, so, so, you, so you wake up in the morning, and then you guys can tell me if any of this sounds familiar to you. So you, you wake up in the morning, your alarm goes off, and, and you're out of bed, and you're, and you're off to, to your quiet time to read the Bible. I probably lost some of you already. So your alarm goes off, you hit the snooze button twice, you're up 20 minutes late, but you still have plenty of time to grab your coffee and sit down and read your Bible and have your quiet time. You, you're in your one-year Bible, you're doing your reading, you're, you're jotting down your notes, you get some really good focused prayer time in, um, and, and, and when you get up from that, that prayer closet or from, from your quiet time, man, you're wired tight. You're ready to go, right? You're focused on God. You're ready to get out into the world and, and be some salt and be some light to, to the unsaved, right? And you walk out the door, and it's 8 o'clock in the morning, and your phone goes off. And you look at it, no big deal, work email. The associate you gave that project to last week is due today. It's not going to get it done. He was pulled in another direction. Uh, your brain's already starting to go as you get in the car. It's starting to churn. Uh, man, I needed that to hit this other deadline. The client's waiting for that. I have to get it to them tomorrow morning. Morning uh, calls all day today. There's no way I'm going to get any of this done. I'm going to be up all night tonight with this. What is this guy doing? Every minute counts. Every minute counts, and this guy's sitting in a green light looking at his phone. Come on, right? And then you're heading to your office, and the first person that you run into is this young man that you've been talking to and trying to develop a relationship with. He works in the mailroom. He's a young guy. He's a nice guy. He's, he's got a family. And you've been trying to s develop some rapport with him because you think there might be a ministry opportunity there, an evangelism opportunity there. Here. And as you're walking through, you're so focused on what you're doing, he greets you, and you're just like, oh, hey, what's up, man? And you go to your office, right? Okay, you don't even know that you just blew him off, but he does. And then you sit down at your desk, and you're churning. You're, you're going through task after task. You're, you're, getting it done, you're getting it done. And then the day goes by, and the next time you come to self-awareness, it's 9 o'clock at night and you're on the way home. You finally put some Francis Chan on, right, to clear your mind on the way back. And he's got you feeling about this big after 10 or 15 minutes. Doesn't he do that? And, and, and it hits you. 
I haven't thought about Christ or anything other than myself and how the world impacts me since 8 o'clock this morning. Now I pray to God that what I've just gone through is entirely foreign to you. But I suspect it's probably not. And sin manifests itself in all kinds of ways, and pride manifests itself in all kinds of ways in our lives. And it may not look like that to you, right? But as C.S. Lewis said, it worms its way into our hearts. It sends out tentacles into all aspects of our lives. Maybe for you it looks like anxiety. That could be pride. When it comes from wanting to control the world and, and thinking that if you could just handle things and manage things just so, everything would turn out okay. That can be pride. As J. Vernon McGee said, he said, it's God's universe, and he manages it his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. (laughs) To think otherwise is pride, and it comes with a lot of anxiety. Or maybe it's resentment. Maybe it's being a complainer. Maybe you think that you're entitled to things or that you deserve things that other people aren't giving you, and you have resentment because of this. Maybe it's vanity. Maybe it's a love of wealth. Maybe it's judgmental. Maybe, maybe it could be anything, right? But the point is that if you just look closely enough at your life, just do it for a few evenings in a row and look back at your thought life. I think we will see that we are hopelessly in love with ourselves, aren't we? And in that regard, I, I just can't, I just can't stop myself from correcting a misreading. I think of scripture while we're here. And I haven't checked it with anybody, so uh, (laughs) I think this is correct, though. But have you ever heard someone say, well, the Lord Jesus says, love others as you love yourself. And I'm just kind of taking some time to work on that first part. I'm spending some time figuring out how to love myself. Look, I don't think that's what Jesus meant there. Okay? We don't have any problem at all loving ourselves. He's not talking about a week in Banff doing self-affirmations. Okay? We're experts at loving ourselves. I mean, think about it for a second. I actually just read a study not that long ago that, that looked longitudinally over centuries at, at news and at, at, at literature and at people's journals. And that study's conclusion was that we are the most self-absorbed generation that has ever occupied this planet. Ask yourselves this, when you see a picture of a crowd and you know you're in there, what do you do? You frantically look for your, your, your face and you just look at it. Why do we do that? It's pride, right? We are a culture that thinks it's perfectly normal to have an entire website devoted to nothing but our vanity that's updated constantly and, and, and pings people 24 hours a day to make them pay more attention to us. I'm not going to belabor it. Maybe I won't belabor it anymore, but the, the point is that we're proud right? It's in us, right? And if you don't think you're proud, pride is like bad breath. Everyone in the room knows you have it, but you. Okay, so we're proud. So what do we do about it? How do we go about getting that pride out of our lives? Now, look, this is the bad news. What I've been talking about so far is the bad news. The great news is that the, 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 the creator God made our brains in such a way that we can change them, right? This is, our brains are plastic, right? And scripture tells us how to do this. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is admirable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So think about these things, not yourself. And it's possible in the power of the Holy Spirit to do this by doing what we read in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, which is to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. 
So let's take thoughts captive and eliminate pride. So, you know, I think that this would start, like in our example, first thing in the morning. Right? If, if you're anything like me, the minute you wake up, this, this internal self-focused dialogue has already started. And so I think you need to do what, what Charles Stanley always says, which is before your feet hit the floor, your knees hit the floor. All right, so we catch these thoughts before they even start with prayer and with a focus on God. And it's not just prayer. As John the Baptist says, we should wait to hear the, the voice of the Lord and we should rejoice in it, right? For us, this is the voice of the Lord. And so the first thing in the morning after your prayer or as part of your, your prayer time, we should be in the scripture, right? Everything in this book is going to orient you outwards and going to orient you towards God and orient you away from yourself. It's going to humble you. So you arm yourself with that. You, you, you store the scripture up in your heart and then you launch yourself out into your day, right? So that's, that's one tool for changing our thought lives. And the problem is, right, as we saw in our little, little vignette, you put pride to death first thing in the morning, but the problem with a, Dan Kachikas always used to say this, the problem with a living sacrifice is what? It always crawls off the altar, right? And it took me, and yes, that example was me. It was like last Wednesday. <laughs> that example was me. It takes about five minutes after you walk out of, of, your, of your quiet time before pride takes over again. And so how do we handle that? Well, I think one good way to do that, a, a tool to do that, comes again from Scripture. We're told in, in uh, uh, the first psalm, that blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night, right? In First Thessalonians, we're, we're told to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in every circumstance. What I think these scriptures are telling us is that we have to be intentional every moment of our lives to keep ourselves focused on the Lord. And one good way, a tool to do that is to do what I call like managing your transitions, so anytime you're going from one thing to another and you have this little pause, that's a time to stop and reorient on the Lord. It's a trigger. And so imagine in my story, if instead of just charging from the car into the office and going and doing all these things and waking up essentially at 9 o'clock at night to myself, I'd taken that moment and that transition between the car and the office and, and just taken a moment of quiet and just said, Lord, go back to the gospel. Lord, I love you so much. I'm so grateful for what you did. I'm so sorry I've been grinding on something silly for the last 20 minutes in light of everything you've done for me in eternity. I'm sorry for that. I love you so much. I'm, I'm so grateful to you. How can I serve you in this next little piece of my day? And that's got you focused on the Lord. It's that simple. And then, and then focusing on others. It's, who am I going to interact with over this next little bit of my day? Lord, how did you put them? Why did you put them in my life? How do you want me to demonstrate you to them? How can I show Christ to them somehow? Give me the strength to do that. And that's it. And then you say your prayer, you're completely reoriented, you say your prayer, and then you go and you take that next hill. You, you, you walk into the office, and you're ready to go. So someone uh, recently told me, the quality is in the seams. Have you ever heard that old, that old saying? And I think that's right. It's, it's these times that come together in our lives, even within the day, that if we can harness those times, we can completely change the way our, the way our day goes and, and what our thought life is, right? So these are, these are two small things. These are, just, these are just small disciplines. But I think using these disciplines, and they're scriptural, I think that we can change our thought life. I think we can grow closer to the Lord. I think we can equip ourselves better to carry out this mission that we've been given. And these will make powerful changes in your life. So let's take a step back. At this point, we've seen again what our role in relationship to Christ is. 
through, our, through looking at John the Baptist and his testimony, we, he's, he's articulated what our mission is in that role. Right? We've identified what the type of heart that we should have. We should have a humble heart. We should have a servant's heart in order to, to occupy that role, in order to fulfill that mission. And then we've looked and we've identified where our greatest, our greatest obstacle is, right? Go, going back, we can see now why God thinks pride is an abomination. It keeps us from fulfilling that role. It keeps us from, from fulfilling that mission. And this is why we should think pride is an abomination too. And with that mindset, we, we, we looked at a couple of tools to understand how to overcome pride in our lives, right? First, I mean, it's not a tool, but we, we reminded ourselves to, to concentrate on the gospel, to understand the gospel's power, and to understand the, the power of the gospel is that it, it can fundamentally and dramatically reorient our lives towards Christ and towards others. And then we looked at a couple of tools to make sure that our daily living, that our daily living matches that reorientation, right? Essentially, what we've done is we've picked up our cross and we've stepped into the struggle against pride in our lives. Okay. So now we have to be honest with each other. We have to be candid. And we have to know that this struggle is going to last a lifetime. We have to know that this struggle is hard. Hard as in hard work. We have to know that this struggle is painful. Being humbled always is. Look at Job. But there's one other thing that we have to understand about this struggle. It's worth it. It's worth it. I'll leave you with one final verse. And this is actually Isaiah 57, 15. And here's what Scripture tells us. It's the, it's the word, God actually speaking to us. He says, For this is what the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says, I dwell in a high and holy place, and I also dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. So we see God dwells in this unimaginable eternal perfection, but he also dwells with the humble. In other words, if we are humble, God can dwell with us. Thinking about the words of John the Baptist, if, if, we've, if we've taken the proper posture in our hearts, if we're in proper relationship to Jesus and oriented properly, we are standing at the wedding shoulder to shoulder with our glorious Savior as his best man and joining him in his work, his amazing loving work of bringing light and hope to people who are lost and hopeless in the darkness. That's worth it. That's worth the work. That's worth the pain. That's worth the death of self. And if we go through this pain and we go through this work in prayer and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I think that we can find, as John the Baptist said, that we will delight in the voice of the Lord. And I think we will find, as John the Baptist was able to say, that our joy is complete. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, for your word. We thank you so much for its power to change our lives. We thank you so much for everything that you've done for us. Help us to respond. Help us to have the proper relationship to you. Help us to, to destroy and overcome pride in our lives so that we can serve you and serve each other better. I thank you so much for the miracle that you can work in our hearts. And we just ask that as we go out from here today, we become not just hearers, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.